0: This is the Gary Vee Audio Experience.
1: It is very clear to me 25 years into my career that kindness and empathy and patience and humility are actually the foundations. And I think the things that all of us think about as soft skills and emotional intelligence are actually the hard skills. That it is far easier for me to find people who are good at the task or have good math skills than it is to find people who are capable of being the bigger woman or bigger man in the face of pressure or adversity. And so for 20 years or so, this has been in my subconscious. COVID, like for many of us, gave me a time to reflect and I immediately went into writing the book uh, on a couple of reasons, one, I'm incredibly aware that there's a lot of young people paying attention to my moves, are fans of what I do, and I thought it would be a disservice if I wasn't incredibly aggressive in my communication on the things that I see as a winning formula. It becomes double important when I realize that most people don't talk about kindness as the single alpha skill in building a successful empire. And I thought it was a unique take. It's also very nuanced. The reason the subtitle is ingredients is when I was going through my process, I realized, oh, I never just deploy empathy. I never just deploy patience. In every situation, it's actually three or four different traits, often traits that are in a conflict with each other. It's very interesting to be tenacious and ambitious while being patient. And so I, I liked the concept of ingredients because it's like cooking a meal. I think we all believe that sweet and sour chicken is something that is delicious, but sweet and sour can see a conflict. So I felt that I was the right person at the right time and what has transpired in the last 18 months, because I wrote the book very quickly in the beginning of COVID, obviously it takes time for it to come out and things of that nature, many of us are thinking about things in the business world around the concept of the great resignation and and the concept of people even applying into businesses in the first place in a world of options. I think the importance of being a leader that understands these traits has even compounded in the last 18 months since I even wrote it, which feels serendipitous and exciting for me. I I really hope that people also, if they read it, realize this is not a book that is meant to over coddle the millennials or Gen Z. This is truly believing that this is the alpha infrastructure to building significantly large successful businesses.
2: What I what I love is this refreshing take on leadership, and I can speak from a woman's perspective that we many of us have mimicked this ideal hard leadership uh, because that was the architect, that was what was, you know, the right leadership. And you're taking the narrative into a different direction. And so what would you say to those who would point to titles of industries and say well, this is not you know, how they were Maybe this is not
1: what you described in the world. Look, I believe that you can have short-term success in many ways, and I believe that the world has been very clear to us over the last centuries that fear and negativity are sometimes a fuel for short-term success. You know, my argument is that it's not as powerful as brightness and love. That that hate is a powerful trait. Uh, But I just believe it never beats love in the end. And I believe that to be true in business. Of course there have been people who've been successful who are not kind leaders. That doesn't mean that it should be mimicked. And I would also ask, if you have the luxury of interacting with people in their 80s and 90s, and especially those who've had major financial success by being mean and negative. I think you'll find that many 80, 90 year olds who've built their empire with darkness have incredible levels of regret and actually lived quite unhappy lives. And so my question simply to business people is, is the money worth the unhappiness?
2: You talk a lot about empathy and kindness, and I think probably the times that we've gone through the last couple of years with everything that's happening in the world, we need more kindness and empathy than ever. And the question here is, how do you deploy these attributes without enabling that behavior, without, you know?
1: Well, I think, first of all, people want everybody else to be kind and empathetic. So my favorite part of this book is accountability. You know, everyone has become incredibly good at judging others. The world is addicted to pointing fingers. I have never seen the world louder about telling everybody else what they're bad at. So I think the way to deploy successful kindness and empathy is to actually start with yourself. I also wanna remind everybody that deploying kindness when the other person is kind to you is very easy. I challenge the world to start having a conversation with itself of does it have the ability to be kind and empathetic in the face of negativity. My leaders are incredibly kind to my employees when everything's going well. I don't need peacetime generals. I need leaders when things are bad and hectic to be able to be the bigger woman and bigger man in that situation to create a framework of kindness and empathy. So, you know, for me, it's about the accountability of being able to be that person. Right now, we are in a world where everyone is so quick to get triggered by bad behavior that they fight fire with fire, which is why so little is being accomplished in society, in politics, and in the workforce. And so for me, I think that we are not spending enough time with our thumbs and we need to stop being addicted to our fingers.
2: One of the things you speak about is self-awareness, which is foundational to any evolution of us as, as human beings. Tell us a bit about that and how do we? where do we start with self-awareness?
1: This is hard. The concept of teaching someone to be more self-aware is something I've been thinking about for a long time. You know, I think the thing that drives so many of us crazy in the world is interacting with those that struggle with self-awareness. I think one of the hardest things for people to deal with is hypocrisy. We struggle with it, and I struggle with it. Um, The exercise in the book that I decided to do was creating frameworks for the people that know you the best to create a safe space for them to be able to tell you the truth. I think one of the reasons people struggle with self-awareness is because they have enablers around them that are allowing them to get away with bad behavior. And so I'm spending a lot of time trying to think about how one puts the people that knows them the best in a safe place to actually give them the critical feedback that could be the jar of a journey towards self-awareness. It's a very tough challenge. I don't know if I have the answer. What I can tell you is no question, the business leaders that I admire, the human beings that I admire, are the ones who are off the charts in self-awareness. I'm incredibly grateful for the luck of the DNA game that I think gave me a lot of it. I would argue that the only reason I have any level of popularity is because of self-awareness. Because of the kind of communicator I am and my personality, I would be completely not palpable if I didn't have high levels of self-awareness because I have some really funny attributes as a communicator. And so it's a conversation we need more of. I do think that self-awareness has a very interesting relationship with accountability. I think that a lot of people actually know what their shortcomings are, but they try to navigate the world in a way where they are hoping that people don't notice. And it's something I'm thinking a lot about.
2: One of the things I actually loved in the book is the part where you talk about relationship with Tom. Yes. And you hear often people say, it's too late for me to start a new business, to move my career, to be married whatever that may be. So the love for you to
1: give us that perspective. The rules of the world right now on when you should have your life figured out, when you should be married, have children, make money, buy a home, and everything else are based completely on when people live to 45 and 55 years old. Period. The rules of our society have not changed in a very long time of expectation on what we should be doing with our lives, the problem with that is we're living to 100. The concept that a 25-year-old should have everything figured out is laughable. Most 60-year-olds I know don't have their life figured out. Why are 25-year-olds putting such pressure? I think that we have societally done a very poor job to our youth which gets me to a place that's even more emotional for me, which is we must challenge the notion that so many parents in the world use their kids' success as their own self-esteem. What that does is it pressures children into short-term behaviors around education, occupation, and relationships that are often missteps based on very small windows of time one of the great reasons i struggle with the way that education is sold in our society is we train kids from a very young age that you will be judged every 90 days on your actions i think it leads to very very vulnerable behavior that maps to our adulthood so yes i think that way too many people are judging themselves in the short term. Yes, I believe that if you are 63 years old, you still have 30 years to achieve fulfillment and happiness. And I think it's time that we have a totally different conversation around age to the point where in actuality, the fact that we pressure children into starting to get serious at 22 is actually ludicrous. 22 to 30 should be wild, wild, high risk, High reward behavior because it's practical. Because even if you blow it and nothing goes well, you can start getting serious at 30, 35. And so we ask people to, now you're a grown-up, get a real job and all this other ludicrous behavior that I think has really hurt society. I think I think a lot of it is predicated on outside affirmation. I think many people start doing things for validation from strangers. Um, or their parents or others, and I think we have to have more thoughtful conversations about it. I, I, think it's, I, I think it's quite depressing, for lack of a better word, that there are people that are 40 years old, still have 60 years ahead of them, and they think it's over. I think that needs to stop.
2: Mm-hmm. So one of the things that's
1: surprising me in the book is your health. That's because Gary Vee, the guy that sits up here, is the king of candor. Exactly. I shoot it straight as an arrow when I'm talking to the world. But when Gary Vaynerchuk, the executive, is sitting across from an employee that he loves and he's scared to tell her or him that they're bad at their job because he fears that that's gonna put them into a spiral of being scared that they're about to be fired is a lesson that has taken me over 20 years to learn. When I I started really reflecting on why in a world where I really don't care about the money, why would I have any employee that has ever worked with me be unhappy with me? And I had to look in the mirror and realize that the greatest shortcoming of my life, let alone my professional career, has been my inability to be candorous about my opinions and feelings which has led to subconscious and then conscious resentment towards that individual, which has led to conflict, which has led to me randomly firing somebody out of left field for them, even though I thought they should have known all along. That was a very difficult thing for me to come to grips with because my greatest pride as a leader is the elimination of fear. When I realized that my lack of candor was actually creating macro fear because nobody actually knew where they stood with me. It was one of the darkest days of my career, but it was also one of the greatest days of my career because it started the process of me starting to figure it out and me being vulnerable and putting it in my book for everyone to see, especially when my reputation as a content creator is that is my strength, was an important step in my own evolution.
2: And what helped you actually that,
1: that space? Reading, reading Facebook groups of former employees that worked for me saying I was a... <laughs> it's incredibly challenging for me. I, I genuinely don't like money enough to have people not like me. I don't know what else to tell you. It's a complete brain twist for me that this could be. And I finally had to take on accountability because it was very easy for me to blame poor performers because everybody around them also thought they sucked so it was easy for me to justify like they were tone deaf they weren't self-aware but the reality is i never gave them a chance to fix it because i wasn't willing to give them constructive criticism and i really so much of my strengths and so much of this book is really just a story of a boy who idolizes his mom but His mom also isn't great at candor, and he picked up on that as well, who also had a father who was exceptional at candor, but his delivery of that candor was so terrible that he demonized the candor without realizing it was the vehicle that the candor was being delivered in that was the problem, not the candor. And so that was a process of self-reflection and experience, and for all the kids in here, no matter how great you think you are, and I thought I was super great at 22, let me give you a preview. The gray hairs come with some value.
2: So on another, another attribute, optimism. Mm. So it's easy to be optimistic when you face a or too. But if life is not you every day, it's ever really hard, where do you draw optimism from?
1: Well, this is where the ingredients come into play. Uh, My optimism comes from gratitude. When you are grateful for what you have versus envious for what you don't have, optimism comes second nature. Life is always going to be challenging, but perspective is something we all need a lot more of. We sit here today in this gorgeous room while 850 million Almost 10% of the world does not have access to clean water. 850 million people in this world do not have access to clean water. I have not been able to put the pieces together to be upset about a business deal going awry in a world where 850 million other people don't have access to clean water. I am dumbfounded by people's inability to be grateful for what they have. For me, optimism is second nature because I'm completely based in fundamental gratitude and I wish more people were too. And that's why I like talking about gratitude. Uh, those <laughs> are not, the
2: things that we speak about. Beautifully selected, and the way that you put those ingredients together actually
1: is so practical in terms of how one can use this this book to to evolve and to kind of reflect. Um, can can I jump in on that? Yes, it's incredibly important, especially for those in here who don't have a lot of context on me. I've been listening to the first 10, 15 minutes of this. Let there be no confusion. I am a full-pledged operator. I am only grounded in practicality. For 22 of the last years, I have been responsible to make payroll 100% on my own back. Everything I'm talking about right now is the framework for those successes. Yet, I could be very empathetic that somebody listening right now may think that this is a very optimistic, delusional ideology. That is why I wrote the book. This is the furthest thing from delusion but society for over 100 years of business have told all of you that the things I'm talking about almost have no place in business or is a very nice to have as long as you have all the other skills. I promise you all those other skills are a commodity. The reason most businesses fail is because they're incapable of firing the people that are producing dollars but are destroying morale.
2: Maybe one more question before we take questions from the audience. Um, Gary, with these attributes, is, is this something that actually we can work on or are we at, you know, we're born with
1: or not? This is a great question. I believe that we are born with a lot of our traits. I believe we are then parented and some of the traits go up and down. I believe we are environments of our neighborhood, our country, our culture. When I tell you the thing that comes least natural to me in the world is candor one-on-one, and for me to see where I am today as a 46-year-old man, everybody in this room has the ability to grow in many of these attributes. Most don't want to put in the work. Most would prefer not to do the things that come hard to them. Most would hope that it goes unnoticed. Nothing goes unnoticed. People may not tell you, but nothing goes unnoticed. I believe in the human spirit. The world is very black and white to be on this one. People evolve. People change. People can get stronger at certain things. People can get weaker at certain things. And so I am incredibly optimistic on human's capacity to evolve. What it requires is first acknowledging its truth, seeing it. One of the reasons I produce the content that I produce is with the hopes that just one, when I do this right now, literally when I tell you that I'm just hopeful that one person in this room is listening and something triggers, one. Because that's profound. Saying a couple of sentences That shift a person's perspective which allows them to start building towards a better place for themselves and the people they love is a great gift and I take on that responsibility and I think everybody in this room who is fortunate enough to be in a happy place has a requirement to start communicating it because we live in a world today where negativity is incredibly loud, and positivity tends to be silent. And I think if you are positive, you have an obligation to your fellow man to communicate it and make it louder.
2: Perhaps we take questions from the audience? Yeah, these
1: microphones that are lined up here excite me to no end. I hope that tons of people. I hope tons of people is that how we're doing it? People are gonna come up to the mics. Please, I mean, I see a lot of hands. Line up and there's a lot of mics. Let's line up and do it. Let's go ladies first. Um, Hi Gary,
2: you I'm gonna be my. to you and I made it free to get out the shoes and So we You're welcome. i the do. I not think you remember there very just before when we were getting to walk down, and this was before
1: you did it was with your team and had like one minute to question. And I don't remember what I I don't recall. Okay,
2: I'm sorry. It's
1: okay. end of my words so when this is over, make, I'll meet you over there on the side and we'll have a chat. What's your name? Nice to meet you. Every yeah. word you've to me because I'm running a social enterprise called Safe Space, and I'm helping organizations
2: to become more psychologetic safe. Build on my burnout, that's I'm saying, as a new close to something in order, I am really struggling to kind of be that person to my company in order to make that happen. Most of that is because I'm almost trying mm-hmm. nice to convince people that it's the right thing to do. Yes. It is exhausting the unbelief. What it, is your advice for teaching your ingredients to a belief that's
1: coming from the planet that just. One of the reasons I never burn out is because I have no interest in convincing anyone about anything. I don't. I'm not not sitting here sharing my thoughts here today to convince you. I'm sitting here to communicate my conviction. There's a very big difference between convincing and communicating conviction. I'm not interested in convincing you that NFTs are big. I have no interest. (laughs) I, I had no passion three years ago to convince you that TikTok was an opportunity or seven years earlier that Instagram was an opportunity, or that social media was an opportunity, or that YouTube was an opportunity. I think people burn out because they try to convince the unconvincible. I'm a bigger fan of sharing my convictions and letting history play itself out. I think what that does is gives you more energy. You're not spending your time on the have nots you're engaging with the energy of the people that have joined the haves. And so trying to convince an organization to do the right thing is historically a bad use of time. What I tell a lot of my friends who wanna change within their organizations or my community is if you love the organization or you love the stability of the paycheck the organization gives you, you do the best you can communicating and if you're unable to move the needle, you take on accountability and have the ability to go do it somewhere else. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you.
3: My name uh, is NLP. I'm very happy to be here because eight years ago, actually. You changed my life. Why? Because uh, I didn't know what to do. And I I've been, I heard you a lot talking about job interviews. I didn't know which voter I choose. So I chose only kind of comments. And that's why uh, I want to say I'm sorry Because since I've been you, I never put a comment. I never put a video on my school. But I choose to do one thing. I make those presents saying you are you. And since seven years till now, Lebanon, my country, in Dubai, everywhere, whatever this is my job, I always take the people, join me the bits of appreciation. And I I just want to take the people that they are are so beautiful. And I want to tell you that you are so beautiful because it changed my life.
1: Thank you. This is an Arabic, and it means you are beautiful. It's not
3: Because you are beautiful. Thank you, Thank you. <laughs> Hello, um, Gary, my name is Isidar. Thank you so much for being here and sharing those amazing um, insights into your personalities.
2: You raised a really
0: important issue that many people do not have access to clean water, and this is a global problem. Can you, use, can you gather us here
1: and find a solution that we can work on to change that problem? Thank you. Um, you know, I'm in the business of saying a couple sentences that highly impact people and change their direction. That happened to me uh, maybe a little bit over a decade ago when at one o'clock in the morning in a bar in New York City, I had a conversation with a young man named Scott Harrison who is the founder of an organization called Charity Water. Scott and I talked for a very brief time like I do with many of you and quickly pivoted and looked me in the face and said, I think you're a nice person. And I said, thank you. He said, let me ask you a question. I said, go ahead. He said, you strike me as the kind of guy that's gonna go on to be very successful and then in your older age, give a lot of money to charity. I said, that's probably right. That's how I see it. He said, why not start giving it now? And it forever changed my life. I realized that that's right. Like, why wouldn't I be giving along the way? Why did I have to collect? And in my old age, not to mention, it feels good along the way. He also then said something very profound to me. He said, Gary, do you know that there's a billion people on earth that don't have access to clean water? And it was stunning. And I started to do my homework. The fact that we've eliminated 150 million people in such a short period of time is profound. If you are affected by what I shared here today, I highly recommend that you Google charity water and understand what building wells in predominantly Africa can mean to changing this outcome. I'm an incredibly proud well member of that organization. And I'm also currently working with Scott on a strategy of getting an enormous amount of Ethereum donated to then be converted to. The dollar to then build more wells. I believe in our lifetime we can get it to zero, because what's powerful is that Scott treats Charity Water like a startup. It he every dollar every dollar that is donated to Charity Water by an individual goes directly 100% into building wells, because people like myself make large donations to pay for the staff so that every other donation can go directly to the impact. So even if you go to the website and donate $10, those $10 are gonna go towards somebody in the process of building a well to bring clean water. It's incredibly intoxicating and fulfilling to make other people happy. And I think more people should practice it. Um, I'm very grateful for the question. Oh, in the back, thank you, sir. My friend, can you get closer to the mic?
3: Yeah, I wasn't if it's working or not, so I don't know who they're thinking. Uh, so, my name is and actually, my question is a bit technical. So, uh, I just wanted to know your opinion. And you think that the NFT market is uh, correlated to the crypto market, and do uh, you see
0: any decoupling happening soon?
1: I apologize, I didn't fully, clearly hear it. One more time?
3: Yeah, I was asking uh, It's a little bit of a question. So I know that some people now are saying that uh, the NFT market is a diminished to the crypto market. So I just wanted to know if you also like, do you that? And
0: yes, uh, we see NFT corporate happening
2: soon.
1: Is the question that the NFT market is disproportionately Larger than the crypto market? No,
0: no, no. So it's like. There we uh, go.
1: There we go. Go ahead.
0: It's like. uh, uh, The relation is inversely proportional to crypto. So whenever crypto is. I see.
1: Um, I think the world is still based on the dollar, whether that's the USD or the Euro. And so the reason you see that happening is though society is not Ethereum based, it is not Bitcoin based. And so When it dips and the NFT goes up or vice versa, that is a reaction to the fact that most people are still based on the dollar or the currency of their society. Over the next decade or two, if currencies become more prevalent and the standard of how people see it, you won't see that reaction to the NFTs. But as long as society continues to be dollars-based, you'll see that reaction every time because people are calculating in dollars, not in Ethereum. Cheers. Oh. Yo.
3: Okay, so now I have to so fast right now. <laughs> I'm a person who public speak in front of everyone, every time I speak a lot, everyone doesn't just shout. <laughs> I'm a great dancer, I used to be a great dancer, I was the champion of Julia and at least for so many years, <clears> the <throat> so, have of 40 companies, I have did it very well to support my family, buy home, did everything that I need to do in a sense of community that everyone told me what to do. And this year, and I think COVID time, like all of us, we were all lost. We were all stuck in our beliefs. And you, you Gary and Jason Wilson who made a book about trying to about it, have changed my life. You made me understand what does a human need to be human. That's it. It's very simple. I, from that perspective, I knew what I want to live in my life. Like, I actually knew what I want to do my life. Wake up in the morning, make my coffee, look at the balcony and say, you hey, know what? The day begins. Let's do this. <laughs> I go out and smile. I share my input. I started a YouTube channel because of you. I honestly believe in share my input to the world. Even if 5 viewers are watching it, I don't really care. I was so happy and these 5 viewers actually call me every day to ask me if make input life. it be cryptocurrency or it will be a normal life, I have 5 viewers of me, And this makes me feel so useful. I'm actually shaking right now. I've been <laughs> on stage worldwide. I've won so many championships in my life. And I use bowling trophy and I gonna shake. But speaking about this, being open up like a human and love and really understand how to handle my emotions one of the hardest things in my life. I was never taught about the way other people got it. So I did come from the ghetto, I did from the lowest of globe. And I'm telling you, thank you so much. I'm not here to you ask you questions. I'm here to say thank you. Keep doing what you're doing. Do not stop. I <laughs> love you back. Love you back. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Uh, this is so awesome to be here. Thank you. <laughs>
0: Okay, I used to be uh, a scientist a couple of years ago, and I so vividly remember that one day I was punished for being completely compassionate, um, mm. Where they came up to me and they're like, "You're supposed to do, do your job." When I was looking after someone who like had mm. a hard attack, that was the day I decided that I don't want to do this. And I was I was looking at your content all these days, and that was my trigger point. And I decided to pursue photography on the weekends. And now it's been four years. I've done that full time, freelance. I freaking love it. <laughs> and like, I. Also, of art saved me and that was my savior and now I'm into NFTs and I'm, I'm trying to bring more people into this space, I'm going to accompany the NFT space. What I'm trying to do is I want to get most of my friends into this space. I feel yeah. like the Web three economy, this creative economy is changing the world. Yes. What I struggle with, and I want to know about this, because you talk so about, about empathy and compassion and I regard myself as a very compassionate person so much so that sometimes I wanna help my friends to get into the space and I'm unable to do that because of their liabilities and their responsibilities. How do you, because I know you did say about general people yep. that you have the obligation to kind of explain to them, but with your, with your friends and families, how do you come to terms that you can't do so much for everyone?
1: Because I deploy patience. Everyone's on a different time schedule. Uh, one of the great things that works for me is a lack of expectations. You know, I want everybody that I ever talk to to see what I see. I'm also incredibly aware that that is not going to be the case on my timeline. You've got to realize that even though you're coming from a beautiful place, the energy that you're talking about right now is selfish. Selfish. You want to feel the endorphin hit of bringing value to somebody you love, which is a wild concept to realize that it's selfish. All you can do is stay consistent with your communication. I mean, there are certain things that I taught my father that took me 26 years to accomplish. If you love them, you won't stop communicating.
0: Thank you so much. Gary, yeah, uh, great to see you on stage, but also awesome to see your team. Your Thank you. It really helped us keep up. Thank um, you. My question is, uh, how do you combine basically the balance between being an operator and contributing so much content and your time to everything else?
1: Thank you for saying that. A uh, couple ways. One, I am very passionate about giving back. Giving back comes in the form of financial give back, but ironically, I believe the biggest way that I give back is by being intellectually generous. By putting out all my content to the world for free, bringing people value. And so I compromise some of my operational upside on my selfish side because I allocate more time to put out content to the world, comma, I'm incredibly operationally strong and I figured out many years ago that if I just filmed every moment of my life, even though in the beginning it was gonna be very weird, that it was a more efficient model for me to create content that I could share to the world. I am one of the most prolific content creators in the world and I never sit down and do content. I just actually live my life and it's just filmed. And so I think it comes from the ambition to give back and from being actually a good operator. Thank you. Cheers. You want, uh, extra, books, extra free books. <laughs> Cheers. Hi
0: Gary. How are you? Uh, I'm here to you. My name is Ben. And I have a simple question for you, uh, which triggers me a lot. Like is it better to sit to get in the car and start driving or
2: knowing where to
1: go. it? Hmm, that's a really fun question. Uh, I believe the answer is very individual. I believe if you're the kind of person that has spent too much time thinking about where to go, that it's time to get in the car and start driving. I believe that if you're a person that continues to drive and you have no idea where you're going, that it's time to pull over and give some thought to think about where you're going.
2: How are we doing with today? I think we've got time for one more question.
0: Hello. Hello. Uh, hello, everybody. my name is Daniel. i understand that you you shouldn't have been invited by this age. I'm 19. I don't know. Yes. But I have an answer idea. I want to start the biggest robotics company in the world.
1: You want to start the biggest what? Robotics company. Robotics company in the world.
0: Yes, I think it's a very big one. You know, but you said like we have up to hundred years today, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah, and I want to know what like I'm. I'm majoring in computer engineering right now, and after I'm planning to like work for two years, three years, and then start my like,
1: Where, where are you planning on working? Switzerland,
0: so Dubai, anywhere.
1: That's in what, company.
0: in what company? I to to can cool I,
1: plan. can I give you, can I give you a thing to debate? You should spend your time right now trying to figure out who you think are the most profound humans in robotics and you should contemplate working for them at all costs, close to them, even if that requires you not getting paid. One of the things that is very misunderstood by people that have big ambitions is in whatever you need to do to get close to what I call get close to the sun, you will get so much more value out of being an intern or an assistant for the person that is making the biggest impact in robotics than getting paid a solid salary, being very far away from anybody that's actually doing it. When you have time on your side, like you do, your biggest competitive advantage to me is the years. You have years. You have 27 years on me. The fact that you can allocate three of them to live very humbly, but to be very close to the people that are pushing the robotic space the most. And you'll find something very interesting. The people are doing the most profound things tend to react very well to youngsters who understand the value of the proximity to them. I would spend all my time mapping the 50 most important people in robotics and messaging everyone on them on LinkedIn, offering your services as an unpaid intern. Some of them may even pay you as an intern because that's their philosophy, but however you can get closest to the actual people is the number one opportunity in front of you. Thank you so much. You're welcome.
2: Unfortunately, the session is drawing to an end, and just before we uh, have the last word, I just wanted to take a moment to thank a few people who made this happen. Uh, thank, obviously, our incredible audience this evening. Thank you so much, everyone.